Father, right now we just pause and we um, we reflect upon your goodness. You're a good God. You love us. You're for us. You're with us. You're in this place. And we invite you now, Holy Spirit, just to do what only you alone can do. Go into those deep areas of our hearts where there's ignorance or hurt or chaos or pain, trauma, uh, guilt, shame, regret, all of these things that just are toxic. And God, we pray that you would shed light upon them. We thank you that in your light, there's life. And so we just take a step towards that direction, knowing that you have already gone before, you've initiated that whole path for us, and you are here this morning to just bring us to life. And so we commit this morning, as well as this entire journey of embarking on this brand new series into your hands, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why don't you guys, if you want, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'll just have to be really honest with you. We're not going to make it very far into this Gospel today. This is going to be more of like an introduction. So if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, What I would like to do this morning, I want to actually just kind of start off with a question. And the question is kind of up there. So first statement and then a question. So obviously many people have opinions about Jesus. And again, the swath is broad. This could be your Cal Poly professor. This could be, you know, your coach. This could be your mom, your dad, you know, some popular atheist on a YouTube video or a TikTok influencer. I mean, the, the opinions are broad and wide. Some of them are fascinating and interesting. Some of them are like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? That's a joke, right? Seriously? Um, but the big question is, what would it look like? Or could we actually discover someone? I'll just read what I wrote here rather than trying riffing all this stuff. All right. What if we could read a memoir about what he was really like written by one of his dearest and closest friends? So imagine um, the best way to know about somebody, whether they're an influencer or a popular person or someone that's well-known or celebrity, is to know someone that knows them as best as they could, like a spouse or someone that's close within their life. And obviously, this makes a lot of sense. Like, if you want to know who my wife is, um, you could either go directly and talk to her or you can talk to me. Like, I'll there's lots of information I can tell you about her. I can not only tell you facts and details and whatnot about who she is and what she's like, but I can also tell you actual, like, stories about the type of a person, the quality of person that she is. That's how we get to know somebody. And the way that this is constructed in the scripture for us is it helps us come face-to-face with Jesus through this lens of this guy by the name of the Apostle John. And so what I thought this morning would be kind of fun is to get to know a little bit about who John is. So think of it this way. It's like an introduction to the guy that actually wrote the story about the life of Jesus. Now, again, most of you guys know that there are basically four gospels in the New Testament. There's really one gospel, four different ways or four different angles. Um, it's kind of reporting the life of who Jesus was. And these are all their different takes, different ways, different aspects. So again, if you were to talk to four different people who know my wife and ask her, what do you, what do you know about Sherry? Each one of us are going to have a different story. Are they contradictory? Not, not really. No, not necessarily at all. But they're just different aspects uh, by way of experience with the same person. And this is exactly how this is written. Now, I want to give it just a, a few quick, like, little data points about John. Uh, this is an ancient historic painting from the 1300s. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name. I'll let you guys go ahead and do that. Um, I love art, and I love especially art of uh, religious figure, figures and all that. They're fascinating to me. Um, but the point that I want to make are just kind of four little things here. Number one, we see that John has written actually and authored five different books in the New Testament. So obviously he's a significant character in what we would call the New Testament 
uh, structure or writing. So he tells us a lot about Jesus and a lot about how to actually live the life of Jesus. Uh, we also know that he is also known as typically the, the apostle of love. This is kind of a name that was given to him. It's actually the way by which John refers to himself. He oftentimes will write in his writing. So in his memoir, rarely will you see him. Um, it's, I, I don't know. Do you guys, anybody watch Seinfeld? A couple of you guys are like, I know what Seinfeld is. It's awesome, by the way. Um, I love the fact that my daughter actually started kind of watching Seinfeld. Like, I feel like success as a, as a parent, like I passed it on to them. Anyways, um, there's this story or this one where he kind of refers to himself in the third person. It's kind of like the way John does. He refers to himself in, in the third person. Um, he, he, he never says his name. But the way he refers to himself is as the apostle whom Jesus loved, or the one whom Jesus loves. Kind of interesting. Like, uh, the way he interjects himself throughout his narrative about the life of Jesus is to refer to himself as, as the one that Jesus is loyal to. It's pretty awesome. Um, now, you know, again, it could be hugely arrogant, but I'll, I'll leave that to you to kind of decide. Um, also, we know that the word love uh, throughout all of John's writings appears around 80 times. 80 times. That's fascinating. By the time we get done with this morning, um, you'll even see why this is even really extraordinarily fascinating, because John did not start out as the kind of the sappy, lovey guy. Um, he, was a, he was a scrapper. He was a, he was a fisherman. He was one of these guys that basically like lived his life on the water around a bunch of like sailors, right? And, and, and yet, by the end of his life, John is so defined by Jesus, he's so identified with Jesus, He's, love literally is what defines him. So it tells you a little bit about the arc of what it means to follow Jesus. So you might look at your life right now and be like, I'm not really loving. Yes, but are you devoted to Jesus? Because over time, over time, in many cases like over millennia, meaning like when you die throughout the ages to come, but the fact of the matter is Jesus is taking us somewhere that, that, that's moving us from where we once were to where he's intending us to be, which involves this idea of love. John also, lastly, uh, frequently exhorted the church to whom he was writing. For, so, for example, First John, if you read that epistle as well, he talks about the word love all the time. He has always instructed them, love one another. And there's these, uh, you know, extra-biblical stories about uh, John. And um, some have kind of uh, described John as kind of like this aged man. He's got a very long beard. We, we know that John was the guy that authored the book of Revelation. Um, like, I would imagine this guy, very, very old. He's probably one of the oldest apostles that outlasted most everyone. I would imagine John having this long, like, sage-like, you know, Gandalf-styled beard, and, and yet he filled with sage advice and wisdom. But it was also described that John typically, in those churches, in those church services, as he would either sit down and, and instruct the people, he would just say, saints, little ones, flock of God, love one another. Like, this was his message. Just pause real quick and think about this. Like, what's the one message our culture is longing to embrace? Somehow, some way, somewhere. It's love. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that we all understand even really what love looks like, what it really means. But I am convinced some semblance of it, some echo of it exists in every human being, and we long for it. And this is, I mean, John is literally the apostle of love. And what I love about this little uh, embarking on this journey is John's going to take us on this adventure of discovery about who Jesus is. And not only who Jesus is, what, but 
what Jesus had done for him and changing him and reshaping him, reformatting the sum total of his life to become this guy that, you know, again, we would identify as like the apostle love who's constantly telling people to love one another. As grandpa, Pastor John would do just like love one another. How did he get to that? And that's what I want for us to think about this morning as we consider really the life of John. So think about this in terms of like different snapshots. So I want to start kind of at the beginning life or beginning part of John's life. Next slide. We'll kind of go through a variety of little snapshots. So if you guys have your Bible, you might want to get ready to uh, turn to some of these locations, or I will also have the scripture up there, but I'm going to read a lot of passages throughout, really, the gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then end at John as we look at the life of this beloved apostle of Jesus. So first of all, what I think is kind of interesting to me is that John, as a human being, right? That's what, that's what God does. He saves human beings. It's really easy, I think, for you and I to kind of read biblical characters and see them or think of them in their, like, perfected state. Like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that was, like, deeply, deeply devoted to Jesus. But we tend to forget the fact that actually he was not always that way. He, he was a guy that had a hot head. He had a really bad temper. He was calling fire down from heaven to destroy people that he hated. He was a racist. He had all of these things that were, that were like resident inside of his heart. And then he met Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. And then he became that. And by the time we get to the end of this, I, I think what we're all going to hopefully see is the, the, the dramatic power of the gospel to change people. So whoever you are, like, the, the impetus oftentimes, especially in our culture, is like, you know, find a life coach and then become better. Well, that sounds awesome in theory. But really, at the end, I think it either leads to one or two things. Where either, one, you feel totally in despair because you're not keeping up with your life coach and you're failing over and over and over again. I think that's where a lot of us live our lives. Just constantly feeling like we're just failing. Or you get some semblance of success and then you look at other people like, how come they can't do better? Like, why are they so overweight? Or why are they not looking the way they should? Or why are they eating the way they are? Why are they relying upon fast food? Why are they not vegan? Why are they not recycling? Why are they driving a vehicle that is destroying our, you know, our economy and our life and our livelihood and our planet? And there's this tendency to kind of become arrogant, boastful, and prideful. So one either ends in despair. One either ends in, like, arrogance. Uh, but the, the power of the gospel actually changes us from the inside out to become a radically different person so that we end up kind of like John. Little ones love one another. Becoming di- identified and, and defined by love. Love is vastly different than an over-self-focus of despair or an over-others-focus of arrogance, like I'm better than them. Love is different. And this is the arc that we see John on. So number one, we see in terms of who John is and where he was, and we're just going to follow kind of the storyline of John. We're introduced to John in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. First of all, we see that John was radically uh, impetuous. Now, a quick question is, impetuous means like impulsive or emotional. It, is impe- being impetuous a bad thing? Anybody? Is it a bad thing? No, not necessarily. It really boils down to what are you impetuous about? Right? What are you? What are you spontaneous about? If you are spontaneously like, I'm going to go gamble twenty thousand dollars. That's bad. I'm going to spontaneously just go drink way too much than I should drink. It's really bad. I'm going to just spontaneously, you know, do things that I shouldn't be doing with my time, energy, and my money. It's really bad. But what if you're spontaneous about Jesus saying, I want you to go do this, and you're like, I'm going to go do it. It's a good thing. This is how John was. 
He was just that impetuous type of human being. And here's his story. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. And going on from there, this is uh, Jesus, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And then Jesus called them, in verse 22, this is the key word, immediately they left the net and the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. What I find fascinating about this is the, the word that's used here, immediately, not eventually. Some of us are eventually people. Like, eventually, I'll get around to following Jesus. Eventually, after I do the calculations and determine, you know, the, the profit and loss margins in my life, will Jesus actually end up becoming a benefit to my life, or will it become an, uh, a deficit or a liability in my life? I'll have to spend some time thinking about this. So eventually, I may get around to following Jesus. With John, it was like, drop my nets, leave my dad. Now, again, there's a lot going on here that the text just necessarily we have to think through carefully. But number one, um, a lot of scholars and historians will tell us that the fact that he's working for his dad and another uh, gospel account tells us that his dad actually had servants that were working for him, hired servants. So his dad obviously has a very successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. So this, no doubt, would have been a, a successful family business that at one point would have gone into John's hands. So imagine inheriting this empire, Right? You make a lot of money, you have a lot of opportunity, a lot of things that are unfolded before you that could become uh, very privileging for you in the years to come. And so here's John in the midst of this. Jesus comes into his life, and all of a sudden, John is, is captured by who Jesus is. He drops everything and just begins to follow Jesus. So again, like I said, many of us, we can tend to, to look at this in a very calculated or a cautious type of approach. We ask a lot of questions, and I think it's actually good to think about carefully, like, what does it mean for us to Jesus? What will I end up giving up or needing to modify or change or think differently about? These are good questions. Will I need to think differently about my sexuality, my identity? Will I need to follow Jesus in every possible way that he invites me to? Will my public image be impacted by Jesus? Will this impact me? Could this potentially even impact me financially? Could I end up losing a job, or end up losing a promotion, end up losing something that could in, in any way bring some form of value and benefit to my life in the form of resources and money? Will I need to stop sleeping with my boyfriend and my girlfriend if I follow Jesus? What will my future look like? Who will I be brought into relationship to Mary? Will I need to get involved in church? What will that look like? These, all of these are questions that are important to be asked. shouldn't minimize them. But I would even suggest, no matter what ideology you follow, it will shape the way that you live, and there will be things that you will end up giving up in order to follow after. So again, this is, this is literally the cost of what we would call discipleship. To follow Jesus means to turn away from certain things, certain ideologies, certain ideologies, certain ways of thinking, and begin to follow Jesus. So someone would describe it this way, that there is a cost to discipleship, a cost to invest your life in Jesus, but there's also a cost to non-discipleship, as one author would describe it. In other words, if you choose not to follow Jesus, that will also cost you something as well. It will likely cost you something that will come in the form of another ideology that comes along and says, I'll follow that. And that has the same type of cost value bracket element that's involved with it as well. But we see with John is that John recognizes Jesus and God uses his impulsive impetuous type of nature, and John then lays everything down and begins to follow him. Imagine it this way. It'd be kind of like 
being at school tomorrow, being on a job site tomorrow, being in a position where you're working on a graphic design project for somebody you know tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes to you in some remarkable way where in that instant you lay down your pencil, your mechanical pen, you lay down your computer, you put down the keys in the car, you put down the shovel, you walk away from whatever that is. And you just devote yourself entirely. And this is kind of like what John's doing. I'm not saying, like, you know, walk away from the coffee that you're making tomorrow for somebody. Obviously, there's a way to leave a job. But the point, you get the idea, is that John, in his impetuous nature, just leaves all and follows Jesus. Second thing I see with regard to John is he's also intense. You can read overbearing. He's this type of personality that's just an intense type of human being. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 goes on to say this. Uh, Jesus went up to the mountain and he called to those to whom, uh, those whom he had desired. In verse 14, it says, and he appointed 12. And it goes on to say, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and then James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, to whom he gave them the name uh, Boenerges, or Boenerges, uh, that is the son of thunder, the sons of thunder. So what's going on here, a lot of scholars have identified, is that the language, the words that Jesus gives them. So these two brothers, uh, James and John, two brothers, their father obviously is this guy named Zebedee. He owns his business. We already talked about him. Um, so whatever type of people they are, their, their personality is intense. So intense that Jesus is like, you know what? It'd be kind of like if Thundercloud A and Thundercloud B came together and had an offspring, it'd be you and your brother. Like you and John... James and John are these offspring of just intensity. You guys are so overbearing. You guys are like the sons of thunder. In fact, some scholars would even point out the word thunder also has kind of like the root language in it of the word rage. You guys are sons of rage. Think about that. Who gets named sons of rage? Like, you literally have to have a hot head or a very, very high temper. Now, again, these types of people to be around sometimes can be decisive. Uh, there's no doubt these types of people are exhausting and in some cases just straight up intimidating. Like, I don't want to be around these people. And I'll be really honest with you. I'm just, with me being transparent, I can be this way. I'm totally this way. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm like an Enneagram 8, so that's kind of like a setback against me. But the point that I would make is this, is that that level of intensity, like the question sometimes can be, can God even use those types of people? Absolutely. God can use those types of people. Now, oftentimes what God has to do is, is break people down like that in order, in a good way, in a humbling way to kind of like break them so that they're not depending upon themselves or being self-reliant or using whatever types of intensity that's there to crush other people, which can oftentimes happen. And I have many, many, many experiences with that. I have two daughters. There's been many times I've had to sit on the edge of their bed and just say, Daddy's really sorry for, for, for crushing you. That's not who I want to be. That's not the type of daddy I want to be. But this is how I acted, and i got to own it because that's the type of man I want to be is to own those types of challenges or hardships and step into becoming a new dad, a new person, so that we as a family can be the people that God intends for us to be. But the point that I would make is this, is that this is the type of person that John is. He's just intense. And yet God takes him, and he becomes this radical man of, like, the apostle of love. It's powerful. 
And then thirdly, we see that John also had anger issues. And again, another little interesting uh, vignette story, Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 55. I'll just read it. It says this, and then Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him. They entered into the Samaritan village. I've got to pause real quick and give a little bit of backstory. Uh, Samaritans were basically these half-breeds. Um, they were half-Jewish and half-Assyrian. Um, so they were never viewed by the Jewish community as people that were accepted. So you can definitely say there's a, there a heck of a lot of uh, just straight-up racism that was going on there. The Jews did not think very kindly at all whatsoever of this other mixed breed uh, of ethnic half-Jews. Not only that, they also had some unique differences in terms of how they worshipped. Their religious views were vastly different. We'll actually get into that when we get into the book of John. But in this particular context, Jesus is saying, hey, let's go to the Samaritan village. So you would imagine already, Jesus already has something up his sleeve that's way beyond their comprehension. Jesus actually cares about people that everybody else tends to just kind of cast off, apparently. And Jesus is actually bringing his disciples, his followers, his apostles, into this a context where they can interact with them as well because Jesus wants to teach them. One of the best ways to just straight up teach people how to love other people is to kind of go into those places and face sometimes your greatest fears or even your prejudices and deal with them straight on, head on, so that they can be dismembered and re-put back together in a way that just looks the way that Jesus intends. So in this particular context, they go into the Samaritan village. It says uh, to make preparations for him. Verse 53, but then the people... Uh, did not receive him. Um, it says, and when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, so they turned to Jesus, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And then Jesus turned to rebuke them. Um, now, the thing that I want first to think about is that, again, I, I, I really believe James and John actually thought they were acting in a form of justice. This is evil. They, they disrespected you, Jesus. You are the Messiah, the King. They disrespected you. That's an act of grievous injustice. Should we, and then there can, because they're good Jewish people, they were deeply familiar with the scriptures, so they would have been very familiar with the story of the life of Elijah, one of the, one of the prophets. And actually, when he goes into the region of Samaria, he actually is in that region, same area, that he calls down fire from heaven to consume the prophets of Baal. And so in their mind, they're thinking like, do you want us to be like the great prophet and stand for justice in a great, profound way to call down fire and to just torch all your enemies and destroy them. And Jesus' whole point, like, no, you don't even get it. Like, this is not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to, like, destroy or torch or kill people. I'm here to save them, rescue them. Your mind is not thinking in the mind of God. So here's the thing. It's very possible to be so deeply devoted to your form of what you think justice is, but it's really not justice. It's vengeance. There's a vast difference between justice and vengeance. Justice in the eyes of God will always lead to healing and wholeness and humanization of other people. Vengeance just kills. That's all vengeance is. Vengeance is a tool, really, that the enemy, Satan, always loves to bring about because it just creates a scapegoat. Then that scapegoat becomes the enemy, the villain that needs to be, like, that, that witch needs to be burned. That's how that works. And so in their minds... They had this deep, incensed form of anger that needed to be dealt with, and Jesus rebukes them. So it's important to just think about, like, whenever Jesus rebukes somebody, it's not to, like, destroy their spirit. It's actually to bring healing. There's a New Testament passage, and I don't even know why I need to, uh, this was not part of my notes, so maybe somebody was here. But the, the point of the matter is, when God corrects, it's not to crush you or to destroy you. So really to remake you. 
to, to remove from you, to surgically remove from you those cancerous tumors that are causing destruction and obstruction, that are basically in the place of creating a pathway of, of goodness and love and kindness to just come forth from him through you to the lives of other people. And when that gets obstructed, or when it becomes a consistent cycle where uh, we are just spewing venom and anger and vengeance and hatred and frustration, all that just seems to come out. This is oftentimes where God comes in and says, no, let's, let's take care of this because I love you. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He steps in and he begins to take care of these situations with them. I think a lot of men have some real deep anger issues. I mean, obviously women can get angry too, but I really see a lot of times men have been doing ministry for a long time and working with men for a really long, long time. And I think a lot of men have a lot of anger issues. Sometimes they're father wounds that have just not ever really been dealt with. They just kind of get pushed off to the side. And uh, because, you know, men, there's so much of a pressure on them to kind of perform and look powerful and look strong and look like they have it all together. They just kind of put on this big, glossy, like, facade, which is really nothing more than a kind of a repeat or recycling of what Adam did in the garden, which is throwing on some fig leaf just to cover up your own nakedness and your own shame. And this is your attempt to go forth. But really beneath your sum total of your life is this, this, this anger that's just destroying you. And it comes out in different ways. And again, men are really good at sometimes, you know, putting their best face forward, especially if it's like in a job interview or a potential dating relationship or uh, whatever, that we have this ability somehow just like put on our game face and overcome whatever types of circumstances are right in front of us. But then that anger never really goes away. It's still consistently residual. And and I I think when I look at the life of John, the only thing that really began to undo and dismantle that anger was, was Jesus. Jesus began to shape John's life. He becomes something radically different. I'm going to transition here a little bit and kind of move on into some of the little snapshots of what Jesus uh, was making John to become, because this is where the story gets really awesome, because it's, you know, we can spend a lot of time thinking about what John failed to do, and how he didn't live up to certain expectations, and how he was just kind of a typical raw, you know, male form human being that was just uh, very uh, broken and filled with chaos, but what we see is John becoming somebody. Uh, Jesus interacts with John in a way that's really profound. In fact, we know that John was part of what we would call the 12 apostles. But even part of that inner circle was what we would call the three. So Peter, James, and John were kind of like these three guys that were constantly being called by Jesus to like go do certain things. So Jesus had like this inner core. And why did, you know, some would suggest that maybe it was because Jesus thought more highly of them. I don't really think so. I think Jesus was like, man, these three guys need a lot of work. Peter, James, and John. If you know, again, if you know anything about Peter, remember, Peter's pretty messed up. But Jesus recognized, like, I love these guys. And I see the potential that they could become. But it will only come through John's trust and confidence in me to to take him where I need to take him. And so John trusted Jesus. Like, I don't know how else to put this other than John just devoted himself to Jesus. There's a lot he didn't understand, but that didn't make sense to John. But in the midst of it, John was like, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And that became basically the raw material that Jesus was then able to use to reshape and remake into what John would end up coming, becoming. So let's jump in and take a look at some of these like, final ones, and I'll be done. 
So we see with regard to John as well, kind of in the transition, we see that John ultimately was entrusted uh, with Jesus' sorrows. And this is an interesting little story in verse uh, 13 of John chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 13, verse 21. It says, then Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he said, one of you will betray me. So this is kind of it, the common scene was called the Last Supper. Jesus uh, on the night just before he dies, um, it describes him in the state being really deeply troubled. Imagine being around Jesus for a lot of time. There's, there's, you know, there's images of Jesus that we see him being identified as a man of sorrows. Um, there's not a lot of images throughout the Bible where you see Jesus like smiling or happy. It doesn't mean that he wasn't. I mean, whatever type of countenance Jesus had, we know that children love kind of hanging out with Jesus, and usually children, they they can sense something, like they can sense the vibe of like, you know, especially grumpy old dudes, like they don't want to hang out with like grumpy old people, they want to hang around with people that are kind of fun and playful, and so whatever was with Jesus, that even children love to come to him, but in this particular context, Jesus knew what was coming. So therefore, in this context, he's obviously deeply troubled, and it's not just the cross that he's facing, but... It's this uh, reality that someone's going to betray him. Have you ever had anyone betray you? Has there ever been anybody in your life that you've completely given them your soul? Everything. They know everything about you. And they betrayed you? That's painful. Imagine knowing that that betrayal is going to come before it comes. Imagine living with the weight of that. That sense of like, oh my gosh, this is going to come. This is Jesus. In this moment of the Last Supper, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he said, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another with confusion. And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, this is John, referring to himself, reclined at Jesus' side. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? a lot going on here that I didn't want to unpack real quick, is that um, when they would eat, they weren't sitting at tables necessarily. They were like sitting around around a like a big you know, rug or something like that. And in the middle of this, they were kind of like leaning on these pillows. And so where's John in proximity to Jesus? He's like right next to him. How close is John? He's pretty close to, to Jesus. He's just right there next to him. And another thing that's kind of fascinating to me is that when Jesus says, when are you going to betray me? Nobody's certain about this. It tells me a little bit about, like, everyone's kind of like, what, who, who could it be? Like, I don't even know. Nobody really knew. Um, so there's a wealth of uncertainty that was going on there. And then verse 26, and then it says, then Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread. So he, he tells John, whispers in maybe perhaps John's ear, it's the guy that I'm going to give a morsel of bread to. Again, you guys, I'm sure, know the story. But what I find fascinating about this is that it's in this context that, that Jesus is sharing something with John. And I think, again, just another big obvious thing to just point out, John is right next to Jesus. And that's my desire for all of you guys. Just be near Jesus. Be near Jesus. You, you want to you know what God is wanting to do in your life? Draw near to him. Stay, stay connected to him. I mean, I realize for a lot of us, it's very easy for us to have certain pathways in our lives that take us far away from Jesus. We're busy with social media, we're busy with work, busy with taking care of kids, and you get all of this, some of these things are, are normal, and they're very, very good. They're just part, they're just called life, right? But creating margin and pathways in life that oftentimes, uh, that, that brings about an awareness of God's nearness and God's love for us is something that, again, that gets crafted over time. We cultivate a life like that. 
Um, and it's really easy to just kind of go days and days and days where we don't even think about that. And again, it's, it can be really easy in that moment to be overwhelmed by guilt and shame and regret. Like, oh, man, I'm not doing enough. And this is where we cycle back into those same systems of like, man, I'm a failure. And at some point, we just have to stop and say, yes, of course, we're all failures. But God loves us so much. He, he knows our weaknesses. Like, he's not shocked or surprised by that. But he is inviting us over and over and over again. The Spirit of God is inviting us to just trust what God is up to in that moment in our lives right then and there. This is where John is at, is that he's literally leaning against the chest of Jesus. And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus speaks to him. So, again, the first thing I noticed that John was entrusted with Jesus' sorrows. Who do you share your sorrows with? I guarantee you it's not going to be someone you don't trust. It's someone that you trust. Someone that you will give your heart to knowing that they're not going to destroy or disappoint. So John was in this context. Uh, Secondly, we see that John was entrusted with Jesus' mom. This is where the story gets really interesting. Standing by verse uh, uh, 25, John chapter 19, it says, Standing by the cross was Mary. And again, in the context here, there's, there's a truckload of Marys that follow Jesus around, a lot of them. Um, but we're just going to focus on this one particular Mary because this would have been Jesus' mom, Mary. It says, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved, and this is another reference to John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So a lot of scholars imagine Jesus is looking to his mother and then looking to John and says, woman, behold your son. And again, you you got to understand, Jesus is on the cross. And and on a cross, the way most people died on a cross is suffocation, asphyxiation. They can't breathe. They stop breathing. So for Jesus to say anything, he has to push up against his feet, which are nailed to a cross. Imagine the excruciating pain. It's driven through a major nerve on your leg in order to gasp enough breath in order to breathe out and to say these particular words. In this context, Jesus is pushing himself up against the cross and saying to his mother, mother, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And there's this exchange that's going on, that Jesus is basically creating a match. Like, John, I'm giving my mom to you. Mom, this is your son now. A lot of you are mothers. A lot of you are new mothers. What's the first thing you do typically when a, when a child is born? It's like you count how many toes are there and fingers are there. You want to make sure that they're healthy. I think I've told you guys this. Some of you might not even really know, but my oldest daughter is expecting, which we're really pretty excited about. I'm going to be a grandpa, so that's kind of cool. But the point of the matter is, is that the hope of real health is what you really long for. Imagine Mary, the first exchange, the first moment she saw Jesus, just like, this wonder and awe over her because she knows there's something unique and powerful about Jesus. Obviously, you're familiar with the whole virgin birth thing, but the point of the matter is is that now, fast forward 33 years, here's Mary at the foot of her son's cross, shocked, dismayed, watching her, her beloved son suffer. And all that Jesus can do is say, John, you're here, and I trust you with my mom. Take care of her. I mean, just... The level of confidence and trust that Jesus had to entrust his mother to to John. He obviously came a long way. Lastly, as we see with regard to John, is that he was given deep revelation about the plans of God. Again, last little slide here. We know in the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with that 
incredible book is that John wrote that book. And he starts out with this little statement right here in John, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, the revelation of Jesus, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that much must soon take place. He made it known by sending the angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the world, word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God gives John this incredible revelation of what will soon take place of God's presence, God's throne room, God's power of Jesus in unique ways. Some of the most amazing and imaginative images that we see of Jesus are actually come from the book of Revelation. And all of this goes through the servant John. And what I want you to see here this morning is that God uses people that are deeply broken. This is the message that John gives to us about what God is up to. And I want, I'm going to read just a couple quick things. I'm going to be done here. John starts a letter, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get to this, so I'm going to. John chapter 1, verse 1 starts off like this. I'll get more into this next week. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John immediately, out the gate, wants to connect you and I as the reader with Jesus. It's just straight up. His whole number one aim is like, reader, dear reader, wherever you're at, whatever continent you're living on, whatever time frame you're living in, I want you to know and see Jesus. He ends his entire letter with these final statements. In John chapter 21, he says this, this is the disciple, referring to himself, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. And then he finishes with the statement. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did uh, where every one of them were written or where every one of them were written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. So John's whole point is that I'm writing to you readers. Because I want you to have an encounter with this Jesus. He's the only hope in this world. He's your only hope for transformation. If you've ever looked at your life and thought, I don't like what I see. I know others around me have been offended and hurt and broken and wounded by my actions. If you've ever lived that life, if you've ever had that encounter, that experience, what John would tell you by way of first-hand testimony, I'm in that same club with you. I know what that feels like. I know what that guilt, regret, shame cycle feels like. I've been there. I've lived that. Jesus is our only hope. I want you to know him. I want you to be transformed by him. His love is the only thing that will change you. It's not Jesus' words of just exhortation, though those are helpful. Jesus' words of advice. Jesus as advice giver, Jesus as life coach, cannot ultimately reshape you. But Jesus as lover, who loves you, who's devoted to you, and as you receive that truth, no matter how small the aperture of your life is or how big it's able to open up to, that Jesus has the power of radically reformatting the sum total of your life, and making you different from what you once were is something that looks like what Jesus intends. There's two final things I want to finish with and I'm done. I think number one is, I have them written up here, I'm going to do number two first, is that the fact is that God changes people. I love the fact of just reading these stories, these biographies about these people. And again, this is not really a story about John. It's a story about Jesus. But it's a story about how Jesus takes people like John. as a son of thunder. A guy that's just filled with rage and anger and just ethnocentricity and frustration. And just this sense of uh, being impetuous. Just all of this. 
And through this encounter with Jesus, it becomes this apostle of love. Like, this is the stuff that Jesus does. And there's incredible hope with that. And then lastly, John gives us this account. And his whole point is that what I'm telling you is true. I started by saying that there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. For some of you guys that are students, you will have professors that will do everything they can in their power through their opinioning to talk you out of your faith. Our world is, is rife. It's filled. We're living within the massive information age where everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. But the point that I'd make is that whose opinion will you listen to? Whose opinion will you let shape your understanding about who God is and who Jesus is and what God is up to in this world? Someone that doesn't love Jesus? Someone that's not devoted to Jesus? Someone that's not even had an encounter with Jesus? Someone that doesn't really care about Jesus? Someone that doesn't even believe in Jesus? Or someone that actually has been radically impacted by Jesus? And at some point, we have to step back and ask, our opinions, our understanding of Jesus is being shaped by somebody. But whose testimony will you believe? And this is the invitation for us all to just take a step back and say, let's let John, this guy who is like part of this inner circle of messed up, broken misfits, and reshape, become a saint. That's, that's the sage I want to listen to. Grandpa, Pastor, Gandalf, John. I want to listen to him. I want to let him give me sage advice and wisdom about who Jesus is because he has this, had this encounter with the resurrected Christ and what he can do in our lives. C.S. Lewis would have this incredible quote, and I'll finish up with this. Just listen to this. He says, give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Live for yourself, and you will only find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else will be thrown in. What are your objections to following Jesus? I can tell you the number one objection in our world today is if I follow Jesus, then I'm no longer in control. I no longer can discover my authentic self. What C.S. Lewis is saying, and I believe it's absolutely true, is that no, 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 no. Your authentic self, your truest, most genuine, most authentic self can only be discovered as you look to Jesus. And as you surrender all of that to Jesus, every last bit of everything to Jesus, that's where you will find life. And I went in with this last quote. I told you I was in the last quote. I have one more because it's a really good one. So you guys are familiar with John Newton. He wrote the song Amazing Grace. And if you're I'm not going to go into his backstory of his life, but some of you guys are familiar with him. Uh, he owned an actual slave ship, and he was part of the whole slave industry until Jesus radically reformed his heart, and he gave it up and sold his ship and spent the rest of his life working with William Wilberforce in England to try to like counteract all of the horrendous evil that was being brought forth through the slave industry. And he wrote the song, you know, Amazing Grace. You guys are familiar with the song. But this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, he says this. I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I think that was the story of John, the beloved apostle. He would look at his life and say, I'm not really where I want to be. 
But God has changed me. He's put me in some place where I would have never been on my own, by my own skill, by my own account, by my own effort, by my own goodwill. It's all by grace that God has done this. And that same hope that John the Beloved Apostle shares and is inviting you to believe that John Newton preached and shared and countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of others would testify to is the invitation for you and I to say, will we follow Jesus and allow him into every aspect and area of our life to bring about that long process, that long reshaping arc where we are shaped from who we once were to becoming people that are like him. I want to invite us all to stand, and I want to pray over us, and then we're going to close up. Um, if you want, why don't you just hold out your hands as just an act of saying, Jesus, I, I'm here for you to give me everything I need. So, Jesus, we come to you just collectively as a community, as a family, as well as individuals. And we just cast everything at your feet. We want you, Jesus, to be Lord over all things. We look at you, Jesus, as our truly our only hope. And we confess our sins to you. We confess our brokenness to you. We confess our chaos to you. We confess just even hidden things that other people don't know about, but nothing's really hidden to you. You see it all. And yet you consistently, relentlessly keep coming back and inviting us to trust you afresh again, time and time again. God, your love is persistent. You're good. And so this morning, God, we just want to entrust all of this to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, my friends here. God, that you would encourage us, strengthen us wherever we're at, we're in this journey. I pray for even those here this morning that have not yet fully even trusted you. They're still in a place of making sense and calculating and trying to understand and figure things out. And God, I pray wherever they're at that you would just meet them right where they're at in your kindness and your goodness and with your invitation to trust. So we just invite you, God, now by your Holy Spirit's power to not only make us the people that become like you, but also as we leave to live as people that look like you, Jesus. We want the church, the community of your people to be such a breath of fresh air on the Central Coast to be such a source of life and goodness that when people interact with other Christians, that they would be blown away by just an otherworldly goodness. So empower us to be all that, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.